Well, we're continuing in our Ain't Nothing Gonna Steal My Joy series, and so I just have a question for you. Is it making a difference for you, focusing on joy throughout the week? Is it making any difference, changing anything for you? I certainly hope so. I hope as you're focusing on joy that you're finding more joy, that you're seeing more opportunities for joy throughout your week. That's the hope. That's my prayer for you because I think uh, as believers, there are more than enough opportunities for joy throughout the week. Amen? Okay, I hope so because every day you wake up, there's something to be joyful about. You woke up. It's another day of life, another day to be with Him. But let's be honest, it's not easy, is it? All day, every day being people of joy. How many of you found circumstances that, were, uh, that gave you the opportunity to not be joyful this week? Anybody that was in, encountered one that thought, hmm, here's a good opportunity to not be joyful. Uh, I had some this week, uh, and I trust most of us did. I hope uh, God is speaking to you in those moments and saying, hey, don't forget, you are a person of joy. Be joyful today. One of the problems, I think, with joy in the church, uh, as I've been contemplating, studying, preparing all of these things that I, I think that we come across, is that some of us see joy and celebration as frivolous activities in the church. We think, ah, that, that has no place in church. That doesn't belong in church. Being joyful, clapping, cheering, yelling, dancing, uh, jumping, that just doesn't belong in church. That's a frivolous activity. Well, if you, there's a certain gentleman uh, named C.S. Lewis, you might have heard of him, uh, pretty amazing theologian of our time, uh, certainly one of the greatest minds that has uh, put some things to pen, and uh, I love reading C.S. Lewis, basically anything he wrote, um, but he, in his book, uh, well, first he argues that the serious activities, the things that we tend to consider serious activities as believers uh, he says they're not a proper analogy of heaven. And if you don't know what an analogy is, I use them all the time. Uh, it's uh, an explanation of one thing to make a point about something else. And so what C.S. Lewis is saying in this uh, book is that the serious activities, the things that are the mundane, the serious, that that isn't an analogy of heaven. In his letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, that's the name of the book, he says, um, let me just get this up there so you can read it. No, Malcolm. It is only in our hours off, only in our moments of permitted festivity, that we find an analogy, meaning an analogy of heaven. Dance and game are frivolous, unimportant down here, for down here is not their natural place. Here they are a moment's rest from the life we were placed here to live. But in this world, everything is upside down. That which, if it could be prolonged here, would be a truancy, is likest that which, is, which in a better country is the end of ends. This is the quote. This is what I want you to pay attention to. Joy is the serious business of heaven, C.S. Lewis writes. And man, is that true. As you encounter people who call themselves Christ followers, as you encounter people who claim Christ as a Lord, and they are just miserable and just can't smile, can't be joyful. What a terrible testimony of the Lord that is, because that's not heaven. I promise you. Those of you who think that you're just going to sit quietly with your hands folded, you're never going to smile, you're not going to jump, you're not going to shout, you're not going to get loud about Jesus, heaven's going to be a shocker for you. Because that's what you're going to do. You're going to sing, you're going to shout, you're going to praise His name. He doesn't care if you're an introvert, an extrovert. He doesn't care if you're a quiet person or a loud person. You will be compelled to shout and sing and dance in front of the king in heaven. We don't, I love that song, I Can Only Imagine. I have no idea what I'm going to do when I face Jesus. I know it's going to be different than probably what I think it's going to look like. But when we step into heaven, it's going to be one continual celebration of who God is. Why wouldn't we do that here? The Lord's model of prayer tells us, on earth as it is in heaven. So if we're going to pray that, then we should expect life to be a celebration here on this earth as it is in heaven. We should be as excited about Jesus as King today as we're going to be someday in paradise. Amen? And our life should reflect that. And maybe, just maybe, our faith should be told that, that we're joyful. 
So my question comes out of that. How much heaven did you experience this week through joy? How much of heaven did you experience this week? Did you celebrate in joy? Because that's what joy does. It brings heaven down to earth. And if you weren't intentional, if you weren't going after it, then you might not have experienced a whole lot of heaven this week. Don't let Satan rob you of another day. Let today be a day of joy, a day of laughing, a day of celebration, because is Jesus on the throne today? All right, then there's something to be joyful about. There's something to be happy about. As we continue in our series, Ain't Nothing Gonna Steal My Joy, we're opening up Philippians chapter 3, and in chapter 3, Paul points out how important it is to focus less on ourselves, whether it's our mistakes or our self-righteousness, and to set our eyes on Christ. Some of us are robbed of joy because our eyes are on us. They're on our circumstances, our mistakes, our story, and not on Jesus' story. That's where we experience true joy, is when our eyes are focused on Him and off of ourselves. Because I don't care how good of a life you're having right now, that joy is nothing compared to the joy we have when we focus on Christ. Because that is a never-ending joy that we get to experience. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up if you want to follow along with us in your own copy of God's Word. If not, you can follow along on the screen. We'll have the verses up there. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and I want to open up Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. So again, if you haven't discovered something about me, is I like to ask questions. And so if you're a note taker, write down the questions. What and how did you rejoice in this week? What did you rejoice about this week? Where, where was there a moment where you said, hallelujah, praise God about this? And not just like a, oh, praise the Lord, and you move on. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. And how did you rejoice? That's another question I have for you. Because you might not be me. Uh, you might not be a, a clapper and a shouter and, a, and somebody who gets loud when they get excited. That's me. I, that's easy for me to do. That, that just comes naturally to me. However that looks like for you, what did it look like to rejoice? And did your rejoicing lead others to rejoice? Because if you're so quiet, if you're so reserved, if you're so focused on self and your celebration and it doesn't lead anybody else to celebrate, then maybe you need to think about how joyful you really are. Because it should lead others to celebrate as well. Whether that's through what you say or, or how you talk or just your demeanor. You ever been around somebody who's so happy that you can't stop smiling too? They did a social experiment where a guy was on a subway and he just started laughing. He, was looking, he acted like he was looking at something on his phone. He just starts cracking up. And people on the train just start laughing with them. Why? Because that joy, that happiness, it's, it's contagious. We also know the same is true for the exact opposite. When someone's miserable, anybody of you ever worked with a miserable person? And it, what happens? You start getting miserable yourself. Unless you go on the offense. And you say, you know what, miserable person? I'm going to just overwhelm you with joy. And we'll see how sad you are then. And just you seek to be joyful. See, Paul considered rejoicing in the Lord a safeguard for their faith, he says here. It's a safeguard for their faith. We believe a lot of things are safeguards for us. We, we want to make sure that our faith remains, that, that we have our faith is safe and that uh, we're, we're not being uh, assaulted by the enemy. Well, you want to safeguard your faith. You want to make sure that you have faith in who God is? Then be joyful. Learn to celebrate who he is. So you might not be taking this very seriously. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you think, oh, the pastor's just a little crazy. He's been drinking Red Bull or something. I don't know. Uh, he wants us to jump and shout and sing and, and all these things. You might just think it's all me. But Paul takes it very seriously. Joy for him, it's not just being happy. It's not feelings for Paul. That's not at all what he thinks joy is. To him, joy is a, a, a powerful force we have. To him, joy is something that takes place in heaven that we receive from heaven, directly from heaven is where joy comes from. And Paul takes this very seriously. Look at Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 2. 
Watch out for those dogs, Paul says, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Paul isn't messing around here. This is, you can feel, you can hear the anger, the righteous anger Paul has here. Um, To be called a dog in early times is about equivalent as it would be today if you called somebody a dog. Um, Certainly not a positive term, wasn't a positive term then. Um, They certainly didn't have as many domesticated dogs at that time. Uh, Most dogs that lived and existed were scavengers. They just, they, they lived to just get the little bit left that was around, to just eat whatever they could, to, to get whatever they could find. And that's what Paul was likening these people to. This is strong language. And it's meant to convey just how adamant Paul is against adding anything to the gospel. And we can look at this and say, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with what Paul is saying here. We shouldn't add anything to the gospel. But my question is, what have we added to the gospel? Because as church people, I know I've done it in, in my life, I've added things to the gospel. Stop smoking. Uh, maybe we've added that to the gospel. Well, if you're a Christian, you have to stop smoking. Well, if you're a Christian, you have to dress this way. If you're a Christian, you have to stop having premarital sex. You have to stop this sin. You have to stop that sin. You must, you have to in order to be a Christian. And sometimes we've conveyed that even to unbelievers. You can't, you know, Christ doesn't want you until you've cleaned up your act. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody who said, well, I, I don't want to go to church, but I want to get my act together first. I've heard people say that. I want to get my life together before I go to church. What? That's like saying I, I want to get my open wound uh, all fixed up before I go to the ER. You go there to get it fixed up. You go there to, to get healed, to get better. That's what church should be for us. We should welcome people in just like Jesus does with open arms and say, you're welcome here. What, what sin that you're caught up in is irrelevant as far as salvation goes because Christ will welcome you as you are. It is not Jesus and anything. It's Jesus only. And yet we've added things to the gospel. Whether we've said it this way or not, we've said in order to be a Christian, you must or you must not this. And you might look at someone and say, I don't think they're a Christian because they have this in their life. They're not a Christian because of this. And all we look at is one negative aspect. We don't look at the positive, we don't look at the fruit, which is what we're told to do. Instead, we look at the negatives. In order to be a Christian, you must or you must not. Jesus says, bring your baggage to me. Bring it all. Bring all that junk, and I'll welcome you with open arms. And as you walk with him... He'll help you to lay down all of that baggage in his timing, in his way. Sometimes we we see people, we we might welcome somebody in who's uh, dealing with a lot of stuff and and they pray to receive Christ and then we immediately go on the offensive. We tell them all the stuff they have to stop doing and we take the role of the Holy Spirit on ourselves. We say, okay, now that you're a Christian, let me tell you the fine print. All of this stuff, stop it immediately. You can't do any of that instead of allowing them to journey with Jesus and allowing them, instead of the must and have to and should of Christianity, of letting them experience more of the love of the Father and wanting to rid their lives of these things, wanting to offload all of this baggage and this sin because of their love for Him. If you're doing something as a Christian because you feel like you should or you have to, you've missed it. When we pursue Christ, when we want to know more of Him, it's because we are so desperately loved by God, we experience so much of His grace and His love that we want to draw closer to Him. And as we do that, we realize, I can't draw any closer to God with this, with this sin, with this baggage, with this junk. And so I have to lay it down in order to get closer to Him. It shouldn't be somebody telling you, you should stop doing that. You, you have to. You're not a good Christian if you keep doing that. That's garbage. Get more of Jesus. Experience more of the love of the Father. And you won't even want to anymore. That won't even be a desire anymore. Does that mean that we just allow sin to run rampant? Of course not. But we point people toward Jesus, knowing as they grow closer to Him, these desires fade away. The baggage falls off. They want to lay their sin down. 
instead of us pointing our finger at them and saying, you should, or telling them they're not a good Christian if they continue to do something. There are no prerequisites to salvation. God accepts us just as we are. Verse 3. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. We don't rely on external rituals or rules. Some of us need to hear that and actually understand that. We worship God properly by allowing the Holy Spirit to direct us and guide us. That's who we are. That's Christianity. It's not a list of rules. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It is following by the power of the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us. When Christians take pride in what they do, they're putting their confidence in self instead of Christ. When we pat ourselves on the back for how good we're doing, we're putting our confidence in ourselves. When we look down on somebody else because of our righteousness, we're putting our trust in ourself and not in Christ. When we look at somebody who's not as far along as us in their walk of faith and we think, well, look how much better I am, we're putting our confidence in ourself and not in Christ. I've heard many Christians, and I've done it myself, brag of their righteous accomplishments of all the wonderful things they've done for Jesus. I've also heard the I've nevers. I've never stepped foot in this place. I've never done this, that, or the other thing. And generally, what I hear is things that aren't even sin, like I've never touched a drop of alcohol as they pat themselves on the back. Now, that can be a great thing. That can be very positive, awesome. But just because you have touched alcohol doesn't mean you're a sinner. And yet we pat ourselves on the back and we congratulate ourselves for all of our wonderful accomplishments. I've heard people, ah, I haven't missed a service in 4,700 years. Good for you. That doesn't make you a great Christian. Doesn't matter how, how many times your butt has hit a pew. What matters is your walk with Jesus. How much have you experienced of the love of God? How much of the grace of God have you understood and taken in and processed how much of your life is lived because you just can't see it any other way than following him. That's a true believer. And I'll tell you right now, I'll take the person smoking in the parking lot who knows very little about Jesus but wants more of him so much than the churchgoer who's been going to, going to church for 80 years and just has no desire for God. Because that person has stalled. They've set up shop. They've stopped climbing the mountain. And that person who might be a total mess, at least they want more. They're running after Jesus. And I want to be around that person. Because that fire, man, that's contagious. That wanting to know Jesus more. All the things that we count toward ourselves. If, if, if I were to have you, if I were to hand out slips of paper as you came in and say, write down all of your accomplishments for Jesus. And on the way out, I should just get a big garbage can. You just toss them all right in there because that's what they are. They're rubbish, Paul says. It's garbage. All the things that we pile up, all the things we pat ourselves on the back for, it's garbage. Our hope isn't what, in what we do, but what Christ has already done. I'm just going to say that again in case you didn't get it. In case you've been patting yourself on the back, in case you think you're better than somebody else in the church, in case you're, you think that your righteousness is greater than somebody else's who maybe uh, is living a rough lifestyle or has fallen back into sin or all these other things. Our hope isn't on what we do, but what Christ has already done. That's where our hope lies. That's where our joy is found. Paul goes on to show us just how useless human achievement is. Verses 4 to 6. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Paul's making a very clear point here. 
If anyone has a reason to trust in their personal accomplishments, if anyone can pat themselves on the back, if anyone can look at the rest of the sinful world and say, I am better than you, Paul has that ability. But we see how Paul views all of his personal accomplishments in verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Man, if we had that viewpoint. I've been in church long enough to see people throw their weight around in church. I was an elder in this place. I was this. I was, I've been in this church since I was in diapers. Good for you. Now, what does your walk with Jesus look like? How much do you want more of him today? What have you done this week to pursue him with desperation? That's what I want to know. And yet we use our positions of authority. We use our, our length of time as a Christian as if that has any bearing on anything. I've met Christians who were closer to Jesus after five years than others after 60 because they never stopped. They just wanted more. And if you don't have that desire this morning, if you're sitting here and saying, you know what, I'm pretty good with where I am. I'm okay. Then you've, you've set up, you've stalled. You've set up shop somewhere up along, along the mountain and you've just, you're comfortable there. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, all the progress I've made, all the things I've done, all the, all the worldly accomplishments I could write down, man, they're just garbage. They're nothing. They're worthless before him. Paul used to base his identity on certain things, and some of us still do. We base our identity on certain accomplishments. Like I said, I, I've, I've, I, I feel bad you know, for the guys. I, don't, I haven't heard any of our elders do this. But say, ah, oh, I've been an elder in this church, so I demand respect. All right, well, show me where that is in the Bible. I don't care what position you've held. We need to pursue Jesus. That's what's important. Not all of our personal accomplishments. Not all the things that we tried to make our identity with. We shouldn't identify with any of this worldly stuff. We don't belong here. We are foreigners in this land. How much, and if you're going to write a question down, the process later, how much of our identity is still tied up in worthless things? How much of your identity is tied up in things that Paul calls worthless instead of your pursuit of Jesus? How much of your righteousness do you see based on your actions? Ooh, that's a tough one. That might wake us up a little bit. How much of our righteousness do we base on our own actions? If we're honest, probably a lot of us base it on our, a good bit of our, our, our actions. We would say, well, here's a reason why I'm righteous. My righteous walk, let me tell you. Instead of saying, I can tell you how much I mess it up. Well, I can really tell you that. But, but for Christ. Paul goes on in verses 8 and 9. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with him himself depends on faith. How many of us can say that we truly see everything else as worthless? I can't raise my hand on that because I still consider things in this world. I'm, I'm still in that struggle of trying to see the things of this world as, as worthless, as garbage, as rubbish, instead of just viewing Christ and what he's done. Everything else should pale in comparison to that, and I'm just not there yet. I don't know if you are. Praise the Lord if you are. I know I'm not if I'm being honest. Again, how much of your righteousness is based on your actions? As we read these verses, as we see Paul's ability to look to Christ for his righteousness, I'm, I'm humbled by that because I, I think as I evaluate myself, like, man, I do. I base my righteousness on my actions, on I'm a pastor and, and I've, you know, all the things I've done. I read the Bible through every year. I do all of these things, and that means nothing. My righteousness is in Christ. 
Paul very plainly lays it out. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. So where's your faith this morning? Is it in you? When you have a bad week, when you mess things up, when you don't walk with him like you should, do you feel less righteous? Maybe that's a better way to look at the question. Do you feel less righteous when you've really messed things up? Because if your righteousness is found in Christ, then whether we're doing really good or really poorly, that doesn't change our righteousness. Philippians 3, 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Man, verse 10, look at that. If this isn't your heartbeat this morning, then repent before God and ask him to give you this heart. I want to know Christ and, the, and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Anybody else say amen to that? If that's not your prayer for this week, then let it be your prayer for this week. God, let me experience the mighty power that raised Christ from the dead this week. And I promise you, your week will be different if you're totally focused on that, of asking him to show you that power. That's how we should be living, because you have the Holy Spirit of God within you. You have access to all of this power. And yet we live like powerless people. We live like ships in the middle of the sea, just controlled by the waves. Oh, our culture is so bad. Oh, things are so dark. Oh, this, that, and the other th- reasons why, every, why life is so hard. We have the power within us that raised Christ from the dead. Nothing can stand in our way. Nothing. Paul says it this way to the Galatian church. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't live for ourselves anymore. Our old self was crucified with Christ, and we are a new creation filled with the power of the living God. Verse 12. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to, to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. So he's very clear. I haven't arrived yet. And so just a question, I want you to ponder it for just a few seconds. One to ten, I, I know some of you don't like me because I always give you one to tens. One to ten, how would you rate your closeness to perfection? One to ten, where would you put yourself this morning? My experience, they've actually done a study on this. The more mature you are spiritually, generally the lower you'll put yourself on this list. Why? For the same reason that if I started practicing piano this week and I played something next week, I'd probably feel pretty good about it. But an experienced pianist would play something a thousand times more complicated and come up with a thousand more things wrong with what he had done. Why? Because the more you're experienced in it, the more that you become adept at something, the more mistakes you can see, the more you realize just how perfect it wasn't. I've been to a, uh, someone's recital uh, for a piano, I don't even know what you call it, piano school. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, and it was amazing. Like, it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen as far as the piano goes. I've never seen anybody play like that in my life. It was beyond, way beyond me. I couldn't have told you a single mistake he made. He was immediately able to say 30 mistakes he made. It was, that should be us as Christians. The longer we walk with Jesus, the less we should feel like, I'm better than you. The more we should realize, you have no idea. You sinner who just walked in here, who obviously just came out of their sin, I can tell you a thousand things more wrong with me than you could come up with about yourself. That should be how we walk with Jesus. Not walking around thinking we're better. Not walking around pointing out everybody else's mistakes, but being an expert on the ways that we still need to bring our self under the cross. And those things which we still need to bring to Christ and ask him to redeem, ask him to take from us. The bar is never lowered for our circumstances. Sometimes we want it to be, 
We want to think, well, I think the Lord understands this about my life, so uh, I think he, he's lowered the bar in this area of life for me. He's, he's lowered the bar here, so he doesn't expect as much from me. He doesn't expect perfection. I just need to make a little progress here. Does that mean no, we give up because Christ isn't going to lower the bar? Absolutely not. Verse 13. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. And this one is going to be powerful for some of you. Because for some of you, the enemy every day of your life reminds you of your past, reminds you of just how messed up you were, of just how broken of a person you have been. And that man or that woman you were before you came to know Christ. He will remind you of every fault of everything that you've ever done. I don't know if that's you this morning. But hear the words of Paul this morning and the words of God. Forget the past. Look forward to what lies ahead. Christ has so much for you. And if you allow the enemy to turn your gaze onto the things of the past, you will miss out on what God wants for your future. He has an amazing future for us if we can get our eyes off of the past. And that goes for some of us who think we're really self-righteous, who instead of focusing on our mistakes, we focus on all of our achievements, on all the wonderful things we've done. Man, if we can just throw that all in the garbage and focus on Christ and look forward to what's ahead, our life will be amazing. Verse 14, I press on, he says, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. What heavenly prize is Paul referring to here? Is there like a cash prize once we enter heaven? No, okay, that's not what he's talking about. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says it pretty well. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. Now, depending on the translation you're reading this from, you'll, you'll see crown uh, here. Um, and there's this idea that there are crowns in heaven once we enter heaven for certain things that happen. Uh, I've talked about this before. I actually wrote a paper on it for ordination. Um, I think there's six or seven crowns that the Bible talks about um, that we can receive in heaven. And basically, uh, God will reward us with these crowns for certain things that we've accomplished. And then what do we do with those crowns? We wear them around and show them off to everybody? No, we immediately lay them at the feet of Christ and say, this is only possible because of you. These are yours, because I couldn't have accomplished any of this without Jesus. And when we live that heart attitude, that's when we can begin to build crowns. Because if we think we're going to accomplish in our own strength and because of our own righteousness, because of how great we are, then we're going to walk into heaven and be like, well, I don't got anything for you. Because you thought you were so great, you didn't need me, and you accomplished nothing. But if we will desperately lean into Jesus realizing there's nothing we can accomplish that's worth accomplishing without him. That's when we will begin to win these prizes Paul's talking about. Those are worth pressing on for. Verses 15 and 16. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. I think this is pretty powerful here. Um, I didn't really realize this until I was really studying it this week of just how powerful what Paul is saying here. One of the things he's saying is that if his readers are spiritually mature, they will agree with him. Seems kind of arrogant to me, but that's Paul. Paul was very sure in what he knew about Jesus, and I think he's right with exactly what he's saying. If people are spiritually mature, they will understand, they will agree with him. If they're not, here's the powerful part. He's leaving it up to God to change their hearts. Paul doesn't consider it his personal mission to convince Christians or spiritual people that he's right. He doesn't see it as his responsibility. He's not going to slow down or stop running the race that God has for him in order to win over those who disagree with him. He doesn't consider that his role. He's going to hold on to the progress he's already made, and he's going to keep running the race that God has set before him. Some of us might need to understand this. Because for some of us, we seek to, whether it's through social media or through conversations, convince people of certain things. Any, any of you changed a viewpoint recently on social media? Wow, really? 
Nobody? Why do we constantly do it then? We fight, we, we, we slow down our race in order to try to convince everybody else of a, of a viewpoint or of something that we believe. And I know some people, I'm just trying to educate everybody. Great, awesome. I don't know anybody that's been educated recently through social media. Yet we still do it. We slow our race down. We try to convince people of our viewpoints. And Paul's saying here, man, I'm, I'm running too fast. I got too much to do for Jesus. I've, I've got, he's got such a clear picture of what God has for him that it's, he just doesn't have time. He, le- he leaves them to God and say, I, well, you know what? As you mature spiritually, I trust that you'll see it this way. And I'm just going to keep pressing on. I'm going to keep moving forward in the race that God has for me. Verse 17. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Can you imagine walking with Jesus so intimately that you could look at anyone and say, follow me as I follow Christ? You know what? If, if you think it's, it's too far out of your reach to follow Jesus, if you think it's too, far, uh, be, it's too much beyond you to obey everything that's in the Bible, just watch me. Follow me, and I'll lead you to him. Whew. Anybody here that feels comfortable doing that right now? I'm signing you up to be a discipler if you are. Uh, that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, follow me. He's so confident in his walk with Jesus that he knows if somebody follows him, they will automatically be following Jesus. And that's how we're supposed to live, church. That's how each and every one of us should live. So obedient to Christ that if somebody were to walk in here, get saved, if you're in a relationship with somebody at work or a neighbor or something, and they come to know Christ, you can just say, you know what? Follow me. If they say, I'm not comfortable coming to church yet, that's okay. Follow me. Follow my example, and I will lead you to Jesus. Also, I want you to notice the hour at the end of that. Follow our example. This includes at least Timothy, but possibly Epaphroditus. Paul's saying, he's not the only one that's living an example worthy of following. He's saying, follow Timothy, follow me, follow Epaphroditus. These guys are all living a life that's worthy of following. And I, I know I, I kind of said it as a, as a joke, but honestly, I expect there to be, some of you should be raising your hand when I say, how many of you feel comfortable saying, follow me? There's some of you that should raise your hand and say, you know what? I, I'm following Jesus. <laughs> I'm passionately following him. Because here's the thing. When you make mistakes, that's something people can learn from. It doesn't mean you're perfect. I feel comfortable saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And I know just to a small degree just how messed up I am. And when I make mistakes, to me, that's a teachable moment. Hey, this is where I messed up. That's why I feel comfortable telling you, hey, I freaked out at somebody at the gym the other day, and I was stupid, and I had to go back, and I had to apologize, and I had to repent to them. Why? Because that's a good example. When you mess up, you should repent. You should apologize. You should make things right. I know I'm going to mess things up. I'm constantly going to mess things up. I won't make it till lunch today before I mess something up. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to turn around and say, follow me. Because as I journey with, with and toward Christ, I know that I should teach people underneath me, those I'm mentoring, those I'm discipling, how to repent. Some of you never learned it. Because those you were mentored by or those you were discipled by didn't teach you what repentance looked like. And that's one of the biggest grievances I have with church is we haven't taught people how to repent. We keep our sin to ourselves, and we, we, whether we have Facebook or not, we live a Facebook life. We share with those under us all the glories of our life and all of the, the positive moments. We don't share some of the ugly stuff. So you might not like it that I share some of my ugly stuff with you, but that's just how it's going to be. Because I want you to follow my example as I follow Christ. If you mess up, if you get angry during the week, then go repent. Eat some crow and, and go have that conversation. Say, you know what? I shouldn't have talked to you that way. I, what you did is irrelevant. My, I'm responsible for me, and I messed up. Paul then contrasts his example with others in verses 18 and 19. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite 
They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. There are many people who attend church, and those who don't, who think they're going to earn their heaven, earn their way to heaven through their conduct. I hope none of you believe that this morning. I don't know how you could after sitting here for any period of time. You cannot earn heaven by your conduct. It doesn't matter what you do, you won't earn your way into heaven. But there are many people who still go to church and those who don't who believe that. But as Paul says, they are headed for destruction. Earlier in this chapter, Paul mentions those who are trusting in their own righteousness through the law. They see their obedience to the law as what's going to give them righteousness. Here Paul, in in these last two verses, Paul is speaking to a group of people, and I'm going to give you a new word, so if you're a research person, you want to research something, they're called antinomians. I just learned this this week, so it's something I studied myself. And it means that they were against the law. These are people that were directly against the law. They actually gave themselves a name, the antinomians. And they said, we're against all the law. And so what... Uh, the law is over here on this pendulum. You have to obey all the law, the Pharisees. If you break any of the laws, you're not righteous before God. And then these antinomians said, we're going to reject every little bit of the law. We're not going to follow the law at all. They were against any laws or rules. Sound familiar? Uh, our culture? <laughs> I feel like we have a culture of antinomians that say, there is no such thing as moral truth. There's no absolutes. You can do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you happy. There are no rules, no laws, just do whatever, is what our culture tells us today. They wanted to live free to indulge their desires without any restraint. That was their goal. As the previous group in this chapter worships the God of rules and regulations, this group worships their stomachs and their physical desires. That's all that matters to them. And both are headed to the same destruction, Paul is saying. Both ends of that pendulum are on their way to hell. But we, we have a different set of values. Why? Verse 20. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. We don't belong here. The moment we accepted Christ as our Savior, we became foreigners in this land. The moment you received Christ, this was no longer your home. We became citizens of heaven, and that's where we belong. Yet, some of us still live like this is our home. And our goal is to fit in and be comfortable here. That's where our money is spent. That's where our time is spent. That's where we invest the the majority of everything is into this life. Not eagerly waiting for Christ to return. If Christ were to come back today... Some of us would say, oh, but if you could only understand, Jesus, what I was going to do. Oh, what my goals were to eventually do. But in the meantime, I was enjoying this life. I was enjoying being a foreigner in this land. Some of us live like he's never coming back. Verse 21. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So we are to steward our bodies well, our physical bodies, but not grow so attached that we focus on making them comfortable and avoiding suffering at all costs. Paul's saying it's going to come. Paul's sitting currently writing this letter in a very uncomfortable place for him physically. And he's encouraging us, don't just don't think this is home. Paul's Paul, I believe, can make it through all of his imprisonments because he knows this is just temporary. I don't belong here in this cell. I don't belong outside of this cell. I belong in heaven. That's where my citizenship is. One day we're going to step into glory and receive a heavenly body. We sang this song this morning, I'll fly away. And if that doesn't bring joy to your heart and your mind as you think about that reality, that one day we're all going to fly away and we'll be in glory and we'll have a heavenly body. Some of you are suffering physically, physical pain, physical torment right now, and just that, that thought should, man, that should be something you're joyful about this week, is to know at one point, man, you're going to step into this place where hurt is no longer there, all the aches and the pains and, and the problems of this life are no longer there. That's where our focus should be. That's what we should live in hope of. As we close, what is it 
about self the enemy has you focused on? Again, if you're a note taker, write that question down. What is it about self the enemy has you focused on? Because I believe Paul hits two different dichotomies here in this chapter. First, he talks about self-righteousness. Maybe that's where the enemy has you focused on self at. It's all of how good you are, how great you are, which will automatically, here's a good tester if you, if you don't know if that's true of you, if you often think that you're better than somebody else, this is where you are. You're stuck in self-righteousness, thinking that you're better than others because of your own righteousness. Or have you been guilty of comparison or congratulating yourself, of thinking, man, I'm, I'm pretty good. Or, oh man, I wish that person would get it together like I have it together. I wish they would dress the way that I dress. I wish they would act the way that I act. I wish they would do this the way that I do it. Or maybe you're on the other side. Maybe the enemy brings up your past to discourage you and rob you of joy. That when you do accomplish something, when God uses you for something, the enemy is right there to say, hey, don't forget, you're a dirtbag. Hey, don't forget, you're really messed up. Hey, don't forget, you barely have a relationship with Jesus. Matter of fact, do you even know you're saved? Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Whether it's to fight a self-righteous attitude or, or in lay down all of our accomplishments or garbage, as Paul puts him, at Jesus' feet. Or maybe it's to fight against our past and forget the past and look forward to what lies ahead. We're going to worship to our theme song here in a second. And this week, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to invite you. Some of you, I feel like you need to, you need to have an altar moment. Maybe you've been trusting too much in your own righteousness, or maybe the enemy, that tape the enemy plays in your mind over and over and over again about just how horrible you are, how messed up you are. And you need to just come up and just give that to the Lord and say, man, I know I'm messed up, and I want to stop allowing the enemy to focus my mind on that, and I want to look forward. I want to press on toward what is ahead. And whichever side of that you're on this morning, I want to invite you, if you want to come up to the altar, if you want to kneel down at the altar, if you want to stand up here and just worship up front, whatever that looks like for you, uh, I, I, I just want an opportunity to, for you to worship. I want to worship with you in that spirit, but also if you just want to kneel down, I want to be able to worship over you. This song of joy, this, uh, what we call, old, the song's name is Old Church Choir, but I want to be able to sing over you. There's n- ain't nothing going to ever steal your joy again. I want to pr- sing that as a prayer over you. So, Uh, The rest of us, let's stand to our feet and let's worship to this and just demand defiantly to the enemy and to this world, there ain't nothing going to steal our joy. And it's brand new.
I hope this is sinking into your heart and your mind this week, that there is nothing should be able to steal your joy because you are secure in Christ. Your hope is in Him, and He never changes. Nothing about Christ will change this week, I promise you. Your circumstances might, the things in your family might, uh, a relationship might, but He will never change. And rest in that this week. And when the enemy, you won't leave this building, some of you, before the enemy begins to remind you of just how messed up you are. You'll have made a decision in this moment that there ain't nothing going to steal your joy, and the enemy's going to walk out and say, yeah, right. Good luck. We know how you're going to act. Don't allow it. Speak out against it. Fight the enemy there where he is. In the, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against something way beyond that and engage that there. Speak the truth of God over yourself, over your joy, over your life, and don't let him rob you of another day. Let's pray. God, I want to pray over our church family. I feel like there's so much power in this song and in this series, God. Some of us have been robbed of joy for too long. And God, I want to pray that you break those chains that the enemy has on our people, on us, that our family here would be one of joy, that as we walk into this building, it would be an overwhelming joy would come over us. That as we encounter you and your manifest presence, God, we would just laugh. We would dance. We would sing. We would shout. Because that's what we're going to do in heaven. And I pray that this week, God, you would give us the opportunity to bring heaven down to earth. When that coworker is being negative and speaking negative things, God, would we celebrate who you are? Would we be happy about you? Would we release the joy that comes from salvation? into our workplaces, into our families, into our circumstances, God? Would we go on the offense and be joyful, speak love and speak life and light into our circumstances? God, I pray over us this week that there would be ain't nothing going to steal our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.